You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, Design Workflow Management for Modern Design Teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Do you want to use your skills to serve movements for social justice? Join a unique team of designers and developers who are also activists, organizers, cultural workers, artists, and musicians, and become a part of their fast-paced, mission-driven shop. Design Action Collective, a worker-owned design and communication studio in downtown Oakland, California, is seeking applicants for the following positions, web developer, web designer, information architect, and project manager. They're committed to providing high-quality visual communications tools to progressive, nonprofit, and grassroots activist organizations, and they're majority non-cis male and people of color owned as well. For more information, visit their site at designation.org, that's D-E-S-I-G-N-A-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Jerome Harris, a graphic designer, former teaching fellow at MICA, and the current design director at Housing Works. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, my name is Jerome Harris. Um, I'm originally from New Haven, Connecticut. Studied advertising at Temple University. And I got my MFA from Yale University in graphic design. And um, for the past years, I've been working at MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art, as a teaching fellow. So it's full-time faculty um, with kind of one course taken off of the course load for research purposes. And now uh, I'm the uh, design director of Housing Works in New York City. And... Um, I'm also a choreographer sometimes. I also DJ sometimes. Um, and I like to cook. Oh, yeah. And I'm a big gamer. Sounds like you're <laughs> juggling a lot over there. I mean, I, some things take more priority than others. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about uh, what you're doing over at, at Housing Works as the design director. Like, what's a, what is Housing Works, first of all? And then kind of walk me through what you do there. What's a regular day like there? Cool. So um, Housing Works is, was originally the housing arm of the ACT UP um, activist collective uh, from the late 80s, early 90s, um, who were, you know, uh, advocating for the rights of people with HIV and AIDS. 
during the uh, kind of AIDS epidemic. So Housing Works was just the group of people who were trying to get people with HIV AIDS into homes so that they could, because if they believed that if they had a place to stay, they, they would get better faster as opposed to being on the street or what have you. So that kind of group of people from act from this activist group kind of grew into this huge now um, nonprofit organization. Um, we have four health clinics around the city of New York, and then we're kind of self-sustained by 12, uh, now 13 thrift stores, 14, actually, we just opened a new one, 14 thrift stores, um, the city, and then we have a bookstore cafe. And in addition to that, we do... Um, maybe four to five huge fundraising campaigns every year. And yeah, we basically, and we uh, move beyond the scope of just HIV AIDS. We help homeless people, uh, people who need to reintegrate into society after they get released from jail, um, drug rehabilitation, like youth services for LGBTQ youth, and of course, housing, housing works. We have, uh, I think, 600 plus units. I don't know that might be incorrect, but we have uh, housing around the city, um, taking care of people with different illnesses, um, getting them. Care. Wow, that sounds like a lot of stuff that you all are doing there. It sounds really impactful. Yep, it's a lot of work. It's all hands on deck. Uh, we have a huge team. We have two um, administrative offices, one in Soho, in New York, and one downtown Brooklyn, where where I work. And um, it's a you know everybody's there. Everybody's down to do the work. It's a very cool work environment. I mean, given the the kind of population we work with, you you have to be empathetic and and down for the cause. And it's it's funny because a part of the job is we you were you were required to take part in civil disobedience <laughs> as okay. a part of the job. So I so like your in your performance review, they, they ask how many protests have you been to this year. Interesting. <laughs> Which I, which which is cool. I'm I I've only been to You're one slacking. so far. You gotta go to more and it, get out in the streets. Off, I, it's only been three months. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> However, yeah, um, I like that. It's it's a, it's an awesome. It's just the values and everybody there is. is um, we're all we're all working on the same team. No egos. Everybody's just getting work done. Um, and okay, so you also asked about a day at work. Now, designing is is it's in t- I'm literally like three designers. Um, right now I'm also, we're also hiring. So when this airs, if we haven't hired anybody, we're looking for a a designer. (laughs) We do, I do a variety of things. I work for the thrift shops and the bookstores. So I do kind of, um, all the marketing for that. So that could be just weekly events, sales, signage and, uh, in-store signage for the store. We do like cut vinyl posters. I do, we do like motion ads for social media, just across the board, everything for, the thrift shops, um, same thing with the bookstore, just any of their needs. And then on the other end, I do um, fundraising, design for fundraising campaigns. So that usually means like building out an identity and a system for the designer that we're going to hire and then our production designer to then build out assets for print, for screen, for social media and everything else in between. Like we just had a um, protest on October 8th in Washington, D.C. for LGBTQ um, rights in the workplace. So um, I got to make protest signs. And so usually protest signs are these kind of like scrappy you know, things that people make on their own, but it's like nicely designed protest signs that, and it's really nice to see. And a, mm-hmm. and a whole bus 
you know, a whole coach bus of Housing Works employees went down to the hill and, and protested. And it's just awesome. You know, it's just, a, it's just a cool thing to feel that you're a part of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. How did you first hear about them? Well, when I so I knew I knew about the thrift stores. That's why when I tell people about housing works, they usually like, oh yeah, go to the thrift store. Um, I was not familiar. I I didn't know the history of them, which I like. But I um, was contacted by the art, the creative director because they had been kind of contracting designers and hadn't had anybody uh, design director full time on the team for a while. So um, she reached out to me because of my work, my, the exhibition, um, As Not For, and thought that I would be a good fit for the workplace. And this was like back in January. And I was like, I don't know. I might stay at Micah. I don't know. And um, I, the ac- academia was proving, after my second year there, it was proving to be a little draining for reasons I, I don't know if I want to talk about. But And I just wanted to move into something that was still fulfilling personally, but I still wanted to give back and I wanted to work the work to be fulfilling. So I, I talked to the creative director and said, I'll give it a shot. And I interviewed, went through a second round of interview. They gave me a design test. <laughs> and then and then they, they pulled me on in, um, in okay. June. And so I know you've only been there, like you said, for just... Uh just a few months now, but uh, what do you want to like accomplish going into 2020? Like, what do you see uh, housing works becoming in the next year? There's multiple goals because they, um, because it's, it's such like a scrappy, I keep using that word, but like we, like every, you know, everything moves pretty fast and everybody has to, everybody has to be all hands on deck. So I'm trying to get them to a place, particularly like the thrift stores, for example, to be in like a competitive advantage design wise with the retailers and the, um, you know, and in the areas of the city that they're in, they're placed, you know, directly, you know, next to places like H and M and J crew and Uniqlo and stuff like this around the city. And these are (laughs) stores with huge design teams and, you know, these corporations with beautiful design. And so I just try to, um, even though it's just me and eventually one other person, just try to give them a, a visual competitive advantage. And they already have a great perception amongst their, their regular shoppers, but just drawing in a new community through more contemporary design and more like um, slick design that, that, feed, that fits into the environment where they exist. And then the other thing is the fundraising campaign in the past, usually because they they happen so fast, there's so much work to do in the past have just kind of been not completely well thought through, just kind of just like, let's just like get it done. So now I'm trying to really bring in more of the advocate voice into it and then also bring in more contemporary design sensibilities into the work, uh, more thoughtful design into the work too. And that way, in, in addition to... <laughs> convincing people to give us money make people feel good through the design and gain a better perception from the from the audience and the and the donor okay. through the work now you mentioned a lot already about starting out at temple being at yale you mentioned your uh exhibit all of which i want to go into of course but i'm curious kind of like the story before all of that so uh where did you grow up i know you're you're currently in brooklyn right now but uh where'd you grow up yeah, I grew up in um, New Haven, Connecticut, actually. Okay. And like, I, like literally, I was I lived a walking distance from Yale <laughs> as a kid. 
And that was a, a interesting place to be because I ended up being, in a way, a benefactor of Yale being really close as a kid. There was the African American Cultural Center on campus, and they had free tutoring. So um, I think all through elementary school and middle school, so I think maybe starting in like third grade through eighth grade, my parents, you know, my parents, you know, couldn't afford to send me to private school, but they did want me to have some kind of, some help, some advantage, you know, that they they understood, understood the public school system could be a hindrance in some ways sometimes. And so my parents brought me to the African-American Culture Center for free tutoring. And I literally went there three days a week for between for that five years, between third grade and like eighth grade and just got tutored. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like I was a I, I needed tutoring, but I think that they understood that we are in proximity to, to this place. Why not, you know, give our give our son a leg up, which, you know, I shout out to my parents for that. And then how I got into design was in the high school <laughs> I, I, they, we had Photoshop on our uh, in our computer lab, and th- in 2001, uh, the, the first thing I designed was, which is really funny. Um, in 2001, Aaliyah died, and that was in August, and 9/11 happened, and so mm-hmm. I was like so moved. I was like, "What do I do?" And I made it. <laughs> I made an image, and I like. I, I don't know. I was probably wasn't using Google. I was probably using like Alta Vista or something like that. I was searching for images of like, you know, the Twin Towers and Aaliyah. And I made this whole collage of uh, all these pictures of Aaliyah and and her choreographer, Fatima Robinson, and all these people. And, it was, and that was like the first thing I ever made. And then after that, that kind of sensibility to isolate figures, which uh, I feel like I most likely got from like Cash Money Records. Um, album artwork <laughs> kind of fed into an interest in, in college and undergraduate to design party flyers. Um, because after that, I kind of got better and better and was using, you know, uh, uh, illegal versions of the Adobe Creative Suite. And <laughs> I think a lot of us were back then, so. <laughs> it, yeah, I, I, no shame, no shame yeah. about it. And it became like a side hustle. I just, I, I you know, I was like a, a, a Photoshop you know, guru at one point and I would just design these party flyers. But um, yeah, New Haven was a really interesting place to grow up because you have the whole disparity. You have the poorest of poor and the like most rich and elite um, all mm. in the same place and like in almost evenly spread in a way. So it's, uh, you get these crossovers of these different moments and Yale students, you know, crossing over with locals and that happens in any kind of college town but um in new haven it's a particularly uh special <laughs> mix it happened a bit when I, I so i went to to morehouse here in atlanta and i remember the first year that i was there this was 99 and uh i mean i'm from like the sticks i'm from like the country so like it was already a a bit of a culture shock coming into a big city but not a not a huge one uh, but Morehouse is one of those kind of schools that has people from like all over the world, from all different socioeconomic backgrounds and everything. And I remember uh, my roommate at the time, apparently his mom told him that he needed to to like dress down if he was going to go out into the neighborhood because Morehouse is literally like in the hood. Like it's in the middle of mm-hmm. uh, not the best neighborhood in the city. Uh, it's certainly not, you know, like 
it's not terrible but it's it's the hood essentially i just i'm probably fucking that up but anyway um i remember him saying that he his mom was like well they told me i need to like dress down like dress in like less expensive clothing just to make sure when i go out that nobody's gonna rob me or anything and i'm like that sounds dumb but if you feel that's what you have to do go right ahead uh so i know what that sort of like odd disparity kind of looks like um uh, yeah, now exactly. it's interesting enough because like that area around morehouse has cleaned up a lot mainly because the school just like bought the land and tore the buildings mm-hmm. down and stuff but mm-hmm. yeah i know what that that can kind of look like in an urban setting yeah, it's uh, it's a and it's both of those things are really interesting to think about because there were I'm being reductive when I'm saying this, so I'm just gonna let everybody know I'm being self-aware about what I'm saying. But like, um, there are like you know a, a spectrum of black people, and and that was also besides it being like pretty racially diverse and like socioeconomically diverse, um, I would hang out i would have a group of black friends and some of them would come from money you know come from more money um and their parents would be a little more like respectable so like um you know they wouldn't use the n-word and <laughs> you know dress a certain way and um would not hang, be a, some of my friends would not be allowed to go to some of like the all ages parties i would go to <laughs> in like mm-hmm. high school middle school so it was just it, it, it i totally understand that, that know who that mom is <laughs> the mom of your roommate. <laughs> yeah. So you were so but, you were yeah. designing these these flyers at Temple. What was your time like there when you were like studying and everything? Um, Temple was Temple was interesting because I I didn't realize that I wanted to do graphic design. Like even when I was making party flyers, I was like, oh, I'm a party flyer designer. You know what I mean? I didn't realize completely what I was doing. So when it t- came time for me to choose a major, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to major in advertising. Because I didn't, you know what I mean. I, I, it, for me, that was like a logical choice. You can't ask, and they also asking like a nineteen or twenty year old what they want to do with the rest of their life. And I was kind of, I was like, okay, I think mm-hmm. I want to do this. So I think around my my junior year, so I realized, oh, Temple has a whole art school, Tyler School of Art. Let me, you know, maybe I should try to go there instead. But I kind of got shut down because I wasn't coming from like a fine arts background, and or, you know, I didn't know that that lane so well i literally sent like i emailed the chair photo images of my party (laughs) and the response was she uh, she i uh, i remember i don't remember her name but she said this is not graphic design oh wow (laughs) you you were not um you can't you, you you can't take classes here um and I was kind of like, whoa. And then I and then I actually went through like the advertising school and there, there's all these roadblocks, like the art school is different than the than the main college and da, da, da. so I was so I was uh, a little bit disappointed, but then I just I mean I was at that point I was self taught anyway, but I just didn't you know, I didn't have any guidance. My parents didn't know what graphic design was. You know what I mean? I didn't have anybody to say, This is what you're doing. Um, I was just doing it. And, but Temple was cool. I love Philadelphia. I move back to Philly any day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a beautiful city. So I'm I'm curious about that that remark because that I don't know that for some reason that just rubbed me the wrong way about them telling you that those flyers that you were doing were not graphic design. As you look back at that time, do you agree with that sentiment or or no? I think, and this kind of like goes into my my the, my kind of um issue with the dominance of modern the understanding that modernism is the whole graphic design because 
what I was doing was a kind of trajectory and kind of black graphic design of following um, in the footsteps of like the artwork, you know, used for Master P and Cash Money Records and like DJ Screw and um, made by Pen and, you know, artwork made by Pen and Pixel in Houston, um, where they would isolate the figures, yeah. have all these like, you know, all these effects and blingy text and stuff. And the, this is, this was a, you know, for a legitimate, this still is a legitimate method of approaching graphic design. So these are the things that I was sending, but like good design is modernist, yeah. right? It's, it's on a grid, it's aligned, it has good proximity and, um, and space and asymmetry and, uh, and is minimalist and, you know, good design only requires a little bit of design. You know what I mean? Like these principles by kind of the champions of the Bauhaus and switch, yeah, like you know, Eurocentric um, design principles, basically. Yeah, became just kind of the, uh, the the entirety of what when you say graphic design, that's what it is, right? Only. So as a as a you know as a young as a twenty as a, like twenty year old, I was kind of like, well, I'm, I was like, I'm making money doing this. This is this is real. <laughs> like this is legit. But I just didn't know how to I didn't know yeah. how to say that. Um, my feelings weren't really that hurt because I did see that like what they were making in the graphic design program. And I was like, Oh, this kind of looks like what I see in like, uh, you know, time magazine or like what I was looking at at the time. Right. Like, this is what, like, this is how the ads look. And, you know, or when I watch TV commercials, this is kind of how things are designed. And it's really interesting. And in, in retrospect, that person, um, and this is not, this is not uncommon. It's, it's just being a gatekeeper of what graphic design is and, what it should be. And I think that's a, a large part of like what I've been writing about and lecturing about recent recently is about how, um, kind of just like making people self-aware that that's not the only way to approach graphic <laughs> mm -hmm. graphic design. There's like a bunch of ways to approach graphic design. Yeah. And I feel like people, it's easy. Modernism, you know, gives an, an immediate legitimacy to, to, to any piece of work. You know, if it looks like that, it's immediately familiar to people and they're like, this is good. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, that, I hope I answered your question. Yeah. So, so after Temple, you kind of went back to your roots in a way you went to graduate school in New Haven at Yale. Yep. What was the, yep. what was the design program like there once you were actually kind of in that institution instead of around it as you were before? Yeah, it was, it was interesting um, from a social standpoint. It, I, I really didn't even like uh like I was at school. I, I went to class, but I would like go home and do my homework, and then like go to my parents' house and have dinner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was like a weird, it I, it was like a weird return back home because I because a lot of people at, who came you know came to to Yale were from other other places clearly as most people do in school. So their society was just their, their classmates. But I just, I was home. So I was like, well, I'll see y'all later. I'm going to, going to eat this fried chicken. <laughs> and then from a school, from a academic point of view, I was, it was literally like a, like, you know, the, the, the clouds broke and the light shined through because I had never thought of approaching design from a research standpoint. I've never had, to think about concepts any deeper than, okay, I'm designing for a gay party, so I'm going to put a dude half naked <laughs> on the front, and it's about, you know, it's a beach party, so I'm going to put palm trees. You know what I mean? I never mm -hmm. thought any 
deeper than that. And so it was like I had professors who were really pushing me to be more conceptual and, and, and really push it, get, get really weird and then say, okay, have I gone too far? Is it still accessible? So thinking about the range of like kind of visual references that you can make and thinking about who's looking at it and who can access that. And also like methods of production. So like I had, for example, I had taught myself HTML and CSS prior to, but like thinking about just not even using coding to make a website, but just make using coding just to make a type of make typographic form. You know what I mean? It's like things like this that sound basic that you would learn in like probably undergraduate mm-hmm. art school were just like new ideas to me. And I was like, oh, shoot, I like this. <laughs> you know, it was like really fun for me. And I had no understanding of how graphic design operated in the mm. fine arts world. Like I, I used to go to museums and stuff and just look at this stuff, but never thought about it in that way. So just learning the nuances and like the the subtle choices that designers make and the understanding how to give people, access people through images and text was like really interesting. And also how to expand my thinking, like how to broaden the way that I think about design was, was that that was more the the, the takeaway for me being at Yale, because I, I literally knew nothing that they had to offer. <laughs> Whereas, like, a lot of my classmates had an understanding mm-hmm. of fine arts and um, graphic design and conceptual thinking and, like, kind of the heroes of graphic design. Like, my heroes were, I didn't even know who they were, actually. I was just, like, reading Vibe magazine and Ebony mm-hmm. magazine and um, looking at music artwork for, you know, Hot 97, which is a hip-hop station in New York, Hot 97 mixtapes and um, Cash Money Records. Like, all these things, like, just yeah, that was the that for me was graphic design, <laughs> my in my black life, as a, as a youth. So, I say, yeah. I mean, I would say it it still very much is still graphic design. I mean, when we look back at it, I think uh, that's the case. It's interesting though that sort of it sounds like Yale was kind of the nexus point where you realize that oh, what I'm doing actually is valid, and I can apply and and explore different things through the work as opposed to kind of just like you said before, kind of just using the work on its face. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So let's let's talk mm-hmm. about your, your exhibition. Uh, it was titled As Not For, Dethroning Our Absolutes. I heard about it last year. Someone yeah. sent me a link. Uh, someone sent me a link to it on AIGA's Eye on Design. It was like a whole article about it. Uh, can yeah. you talk about the exhibit and sort of where the the notion came from to curate all this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really funny. I... Um... So when I was at MICA, we were required to do a research project. And I had two topics that I wanted to do. And I was actually leading away from doing black design because I was a little bit exhausted with kind of the notion of being a a mascot for the race in a way. (laughs) In graphic design, I was like, I don't know if Hmm. I want to do this. Um, And so my other topic, because I'm a gamer, I'm really interested in kind of the maximal, like really saturated colors and like compositions. And like if you just look at a still of a video game and bringing that that kind of that level of like uh, overwhelmingness to um, to over into a graphic design and communication standpoint. That was my initial idea. And I was interested in like fantasy worlds or whatever. But then um, I started doing going down both paths and researching both and I, I already had done a little research into a buddy esquire who was a uh he designed hip-hop party party flyers during the rise of hip-hop before it was mm-hmm. even called hip-hop and I, I think i just had the thought i was like there gotta be there has to be more people <laughs> i was like they have they gotta be out there 
So I I went down this. I felt like a detective because I was like, like started with nothing, right? I had him. I knew I had Cornell's hip hop archive, and I was like, all right, how, how am I going to find anybody else? So I'm emailing people, asking people. I did like an extensive search. I found about you know found out about Aaron Douglas during the. Um, who did illustrations during the Harlem Renaissance, but he wasn't really a graphic designer. And I think I like accidentally stumbled upon Emery Douglas, who is the minister of culture from for the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. And then Emmett McBain, who had his own McBain Associates in Chicago. Um, he had a black ad agency. I don't know how I found him. And through him, I found Leroy Winbush and Eugene Winslow, all of which um, were black men who had advertising agencies in Chicago, and then Archie Boston was was out there. He was I, the AIGA had written about him a bunch, so I was like, st- I kept stumbling upon people, and it felt, and I and I was I was feeling optimistic. And at the end of that semester, that was my first that was my first year at MICA. We had to do a present we had to do a presentation of our research, and I did the presentation in my chair. Um, at the end of my presentation was like, why don't you make this an exhibition? And I was like, okay, <laughs> I will. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and it's a very graphic, graphic designerly uh, exhibition It's 47 posters. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like things. Of course, a graphic designer would make an exhibition mm-hmm. of posters. And it went up. Micah asked, you know, the communications office was like, do you want to put together a press release? Do you want to, and I was like, I don't care. Like, I, I honestly thought that it was just like, I was just trying to fulfill um, a requirement for my fellowship, to be honest. Like, I wasn't thinking about it any mm-hmm. deeper than that. And I, it really took off. Like, people received it well. I think a lot of people were sh- were like, I did not know this was needed. And I and I was like, well, I didn't, I, me neither. <laughs> like, I, I didn't know either. I was just, this is just what, I just wanted yeah. to do this. Um, it was it was more of a selfish endeavor more than more than like an endeavor of trying to, you know, do some in diversity inclusion initiative or something like this. It was kind of like a, a black man searching for his history and graphic design, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and and it's it's really been received well. And uh, and like even it the. the the show went to um, Virginia Commonwealth University. The students in a um, design research class are actually writing um, an addendum to um, Philip Meg's uh, History of Graphic Design because he wrote that book while he was at VCU. So now they're writing an addendum, which now, or they, I was told that they were going to do this through the class um, to include these designers and his history in, nice. the, in that book, which is like, Whoa, I didn't know that would happen. And then, like, for, the show is also in um, at CCA, um, California College of Art in San Francisco. And there's the Letterform archive is out there, and they found out about Sylvia Abernathy, who's the only woman in my show, unfortunately, sorry. And um, she had these beautiful record sleeves that she designed for Delmark Records, for, for jazz music. And um, they found out about her through me, actually acquired copies of the record sleeves for their archives, and then did an exhibition of design and music. So when I was out there, I went to the exhibition, and they had Joseph Albers, who was the first kind of chair of Yale's graphic design program. He had done some record sleeves for jazz music next to Sylvia Abernathy. And that was just kind of like one of those moments when it's just kind of like, 
like this is like what like I didn't know that I wanted that you know I didn't know that I wanted to see this person who is highly celebrated next to this underdog um, on the same wall you know doing the same work mm-hmm. for the same thing you know and and those moments are just kind of like these 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 surprises that come up along the way um, in addition to like short conversations that I have with just like young designers who are just kind of like thank you for doing this. And I was like, well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's accidentally at the service of you. So you're welcome. But like, you know, you do something like this, you know, you do it now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen some of the, the posters in the exhibit. I it's, it hasn't made it to Atlanta yet, nor have I made it to where the, uh, the exhibits are, but I've seen a couple of, of photos. Like I see that there's like, uh, album art from Def Jam, um, the record sleeves that you mentioned from Sylvia Abernathy. There's like movie posters from Art Sims who did a lot of work with, uh, with Spike Lee. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, like you said, you get a lot of, uh, questions about it. It's getting a lot of feedback. Is there one question in particular that you just like hate answering about the exhibit? I can't I can't necessarily put it into words, but I but I think that I always get caught up in um some question about buzzwords like representation, diversity, inclusion, you know, um these kind of like uh catch all terms that when you see a person of a person who's not cis and white, you know what I mean, they kind of are fit into these <laughs> these groupings. Mm-hmm. Because uh, to be, and I and I always make it a point to say this wasn't like this, this this at this point right like me touring the show and like doing workshop and stuff. Now I'm working at the service, but kind of out of at service of the field in a way, trying trying to shake things up a little bit, just out of because I see there's a need. But initially, no, it was it was uh, it was a selfish endeavor. I just wanted to know. I just I needed to know, and I needed to be able to defend my work. And talk about my work, which came from a lineage of black designers, mm-hmm. um, and be able to defend that when people ask me about my work or why things look the way they do, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, don't, I hate being, I, I hate, something about that feels a little reductive, right? Let's just say, you know, is this a diversity inclusion thing? Because what happens is that, like, it's, you know, if it's like something, you know, dealing with the the queer community, right? Then you then you you're still like put in a marginalized group. This is a queer thing. This is a black thing. This is a mm-hmm. you know, it's not. It's a graphic design thing actually, um, and it's been neglected and and put you know just make normalize it. Thanks. <laughs> you yeah. know, I I mean like with revision path and and I know that feeling that that you're talking about because I started revision path honestly under similarly selfish sort of me- well part selfish part. I guess petty, I guess we'll, we'll say that. Um, so, and, and so the, and I've told this story on the show before, but I initially had the idea to do this way back in 2006. Uh, I had, uh, this, uh, this event that I had created called the black weblog awards. And one of the categories was for best blog design. And it's interesting. You mentioned like vibe and, uh, and, uh, you know, album covers and stuff like that. Cause I knew the, who those designers were. I knew the people that yeah. were making those designs and they were not getting any level of recognition. I'm not talking about like just an interview here or there. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody was yeah. mentioning them. Nobody was talking about them. No one was asking them 
to speak anywhere or anything like that. And I wanted to do something around black design back then, but I was doing the Black Web Blog Awards. I was in grad school and I was working a full time job. So I was like, I don't have time to sort of do all this. It wasn't until seven years later, like after I had stopped working for corporate America, started my studio and was five years in on that. I was like, oh, I have time to do this. So I really honestly did it as a, a kind of selfish slash petty thing. One, to kind of like put my thumb in the eye of graphic design in terms of like the graphic design community to be like, we're here. You just don't see us for some reason. Yeah. I don't know. But then also to do it because I wanted to see more of us out there. And I felt like yeah. I don't know who else is really doing this, at least on a on a level that is like picking up any level of visibility. So I'm just going to try to add to it. Like I knew I wasn't the first to do it, uh, but I also hope that I'm not like the last to do it, too. So I, I get that that feeling because what ends up happening is that as the project gains steam and gets out there in the community, it gets out there in the world, really, uh, other people start ascribing values to it that have nothing yep. to do with why you started it. So like with Revision Path, people will say that um, it is uh, it's for it's for people of color in the tech industry. It's for black people. You can say black. You can you can say yeah. that you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to you don't have to to you know uh, codify it in that sort of way. You can say it because that's that's what it is. Or they'll say, oh, it's only for African Americans uh, looking to get into Silicon Valley. No, it's not. It's I talk to people all over the world, not just in Silicon Valley, not just trying to get into tech. And I end up having to do a lot of clarification because people want to ascribe their own values to it because they see it or at least they're using it as a resource for diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And that was never my initial, that was never my initial goal for it. It was yeah. really just, I want to see more of us out there and I want to celebrate what we're doing and what we're contributing. Um, it's, I'm not doing this as some sort of a, uh, some sort of a, a way to highlight a deficit. I think AIGA yeah. already does a great job of that. This is no shade by yeah. saying that, by the way, but I mean, they do the design census. They point it out every year. So it's not, <laughs> that's a fact. But <laughs> And that's also, that, that is also problematic too, because like little, you know, people like who are like me, right. Who are like self-taught designers mm -hmm. don't, are not filling out that survey because <laughs> they don't, they don't know about it. You know what I mean? They're not yeah. a part of the AIGA. They don't, you know what I mean? They're, they're making the things that they make. Like there's a website called Seven Days, Seven Nights, which does um, nightlife in the New York City area mm -hmm. and around the United States in general. But like, um, it's the it's the, that that aesthetic of that of the, the you know the pen and pixel aesthetic is still there. They they've definitely pushed yeah. it forward, right? None of those designers are filling out that that survey, and I'm pretty sure because it's Latino and Black parties. I'm pretty sure it's Latino and Black people designing those those things, mm -hmm. you know. So. Um, there's there's a lot of I feel like there's still work to be done because uh, there's a whole batch of people who are making good money doing that mm -hmm. kind of work and um, are not being included or not or their careers are not being acknowledged. Uh, and so. one sort of interesting kind of a I don't know just sort of a a footnote on the whole like pen and pixel style. I I really love that style. For those that are are maybe not familiar, like go to Google Images, look up. Master P, Mia X, Silk the Shocker, Juvenile. You, you know, it's sort of like the the gilded serif font with the baguette diamonds for text kind of thing. And yeah. I think it was 
the art director's club or the type director's club or someone did like a a version of that for their young guns. I, I might be completely getting this wrong, but I remember the backlash from it, from people saying, mm-hmm. honestly, from honestly, it was mostly from black people saying they're like, oh, the, I can't believe that you were represent design in this way. It looks so ghetto. It looks so hood. And I'm like, it looks like it's <laughs> it's design like. Granted, the way they did it, it did kind of make it look like the guy was a pimp inside of the the art director club image with like gold teeth, and he had like a four finger ring, and it wasn't the it wasn't the best, oh, well, then I guess, presentation. But I got where the inspiration was coming from, so that's yeah. I well, let me. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go too long on this, but the. The owner, Sean Birch, Burke, I don't know how to say his name, he's contacted me twice um, about including um, the work from his from Pin and Pixel in his show, in my in my exhibition, and he's made the point that in fact I can open the email right now. He made the point that you know my he's like my studio was not a black studio. He basically didn't want the public to think that Pin and Pixel was a black owned. Oh. Business. And he, he's made the, I can, like, I can even read the email right now, but, this um, isn't, this isn't like, uh, expose, is it? <laughs> no, it's not an expose. I'm not, okay. I, don't, I, don't, I really don't care because the pen and pixel doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't existed for a really long time. Uh-huh. And, um, it's been featured, like they've been getting a lot of press. Um, people have featured them, but like the work that gets featured has been, I mean, even in Sean Birch's own words, was art directed by Master P, Baby, Slim, you know what I mean? Um, you know, uh, DJ yeah. Screw. They, these, these people came in and said, you know what I want? I want, a, I want a Mercedes. I want a photo of me bent over the Mercedes. I want two lines in the side. I want diamonds mm-hmm. in the text. Uh, you know what I mean? This is the work of an art director. You know what I mean? And for me, like you as a, and, and you, uh, Pen and Pixel is working more as a production designer because not all of their work looks like that. Yeah. And, and so we, and I, and I tried to explain that to him clearly. We had a, a long phone conversation uh, and he, and he pulled out that I have black friends. Wow. <laughs> anyway, he sent me, he emailed me a picture of like his employees with his one black designer on the team. like dude i was like do you know this is racist (laughs) listen i'll i'll add i'll add a little something to that anecdote not not necessarily pen and pixel related but so there's there's a certain and i'm not gonna name names here but there's a certain show uh that comes on a certain streaming service that highlights (laughs) designers they just had a new season which came up recently And the people who like create that show, for example, had made sure to reach out to me uh, and mention that they had uh, two black designers this year. Like, am I supposed to be doing cartwheels in the street over that? Like, okay, fine. Wonderful. Thanks. That's great. Because the only because the first season, they only had one. So, you know, progress. But (laughs) I do have to say, I mean, even, and, and I do, I don't, I, I, I try to listen to other design podcasts, but it's like, there's, there's such a ubiquity. Like I'll listen to the person and look at the work and I'm like, yo, you keep interviewing the same person over and over again. 
Like there's mm. no real, like there might be a shift in medium, but the work all yeah. looks the same. And it's really boring. And that goes back to the stupid modernism thing. It's like, y'all, y'all love a little Sam Serif typeface. Y'all love, you know, <laughs> yeah. y'all, y'all love your modernist principles. Like y'all just build another Bauhaus. Like it's just so, I'm like honestly sick of it. It's, there's so many other ways to, to, to do a piece of graphic design mm-hmm. to approach in any medium. And it really, yeah. Anyway, that's not your podcast. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> present company. The people that's you good. interview are very diverse, <laughs> and I, and I, and it, and it makes me very happy. I've been listening for years, and yeah. Shout out to you, Maurice. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm curious. Do you think that your exhibit would have gotten the same visibility if it weren't at Micah? Like, let's say if it w- it was at like the Lewis Museum. The, for people listening, the Reginald Lewis Museum, it's a, a black well, African-American history and culture uh, museum. Do you think that this exhibit would have gotten the same level of reach to white design spaces? Um, I don't I, I don't know. I want to um, suspect. I, I, I think no. But um, what ended up happening and Michael was like, you know, they, they put out, you know, they, they asked me, like, you want us to put out a press, a press release? I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I don't know if, because that's kind of the thing. Like once I started getting pressed, people were like, oh shit, there's a black show. <laughs> let's go yeah. see it. So, yeah. um, and not, you know, and not just like white people, but like, well, everybody, right. Everybody was like, oh shit, we should go see this. This looks cool. And so I don't know if, uh, you know, the, the Lewis Museum put out a press release, if it would have been perce- received, you know, the same way. Um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that. And also, like like I said, I, well, I didn't expect anything for the show. I was going to be up for for a month, two weeks to, to a month. And I was going to take the posters down and throw them away. Like I didn't. Yeah, I didn't think, you know, so I, I, I can't answer that question. But I suspect where I was, did the perception of the institution did help. Uh, I'm not gonna. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I suspect so. I don't okay. know though, because also the, the the reception of the show was such that um, uh, people did respond well, regardless of what. So like it might have, you know, it, it might have just been the show itself might have also drawn people to the Lewis Museum yeah. had it been there. Let me also say this though too: I I have not shown at a black institution yet. I will. I would like to. <laughs> I've been trying to. So if you're mm-hmm. listening to this and you're at an HBCU or a or a black gallery um, or a museum, let uh, I would like to show my show there. Bring Thanks. it on down Bye. here to Atlanta. We got a few of them. <laughs> we got Hammond's House. Actually, Hammond's House is in my neighborhood. Okay, Hammond's House. Um, Spellman has a art museum on campus. So just putting that out there. Um, I've seen the exhibit also been referred to as incomplete. And one thing that you, you know, mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview is that there is only one woman in the exhibit, Sylvia Abernathy. Um, Now that it's on tour, are you planning on sort of supplementing the exhibit with more designers as you as you discover more about them? No, because I don't have time, but I because I work full time and the exhibition like when I was teaching, right, I was teaching like a two, two, three course load. And that first semester when I was teaching two classes, that time off was the time I would use to research. So um, essentially I would need like a, like I literally was taking like a part-time job load, maybe like 
20, 20 hours or so a week just dedicated to the show. And I just don't have mm-hmm. that time now. I know there's more people. I was recently put on to the curator of the LeBallon Center at at Cooper Union, put me on to an article in Idea Magazine, which is a Japanese um, design magazine from like the 70s. And apparently mm-hmm. somebody else did an exhibition of black designers oh, in wow. Japan. And there's like, and I looked at the spread. It's in Japanese. So I don't know what it says, but there's, there's like, all, there's like 50 plus black designers that were featured like African-Americans. And I was like, who are these people? <laughs> and I think the only one who I knew was, was George uh-huh. Olden and the rest of them. I was like, I need to look these people up. In addition to like, and, um, Michelle Washington, who, who is like, graphic like graphic designs like uh she like she knows everybody <laughs> um yeah, yeah she also did a show with um with Flo I was saying her name wrong uh Flo um, Wilson yeah with Flo, yeah exactly with Flo and back in the back in the day and um I would I need to see documentation of that too like I did I, yeah, I didn't know that too um we ran into Flo at Black and Black and Design I was like oh like I'm, Michelle had mentioned it to me and then I also met like other black designers who had done their thesis. I met this guy Steve in San Francisco who did his thesis um, at RISD back in um, the '90s on black designers and kind of the representation of black people in design. And so it's like been happening. It's just that it just hasn't been a thing that has mm-hmm. gotten traction. I think for me, I think I, I think maybe the advantage for me is that it's a uh, my show is kind of a research, a research guide in a way. Like when you go to the show in the didactics, there is, and you, you can see what archive I got the work from the name of the work yeah. then, you know, the name of the archive, the city that it's in. So, and it's almost like encouraging everybody to go ahead and continue the work themselves. If you go to the archive and look at the work, or if you go to a digital archive, you might respond to the work differently than gotcha. I did, you know? So it's more just like a open access to not, it's like a traveling archive as mm-hmm. exhibition. Like, um, so that's, I mean, that's the only thing. And I, and I would like to like celebrate these shows. I don't know. So I, I would like to include those more into my work as well. Somehow I just haven't figured out. So before you mentioned, you know, um, like Vibe magazine and other publications and things that were kind of influencing you when you were first starting out, who are some of your your influences now with your work? It was really funny because I've actually been looking at, at fine artists more than graphic designers. In addition to <laughs> uh, video games and things that don't that are not graphic mm-hmm. design. <laughs> Let me see if I can find, um, like you know, if, like Lorna Simpson, for example, like her collages. Thinking about or thinking about like how Lorna Simpson's work. And then, like, thinking about how Kara Walker isolates the figure and about how I was doing that. And, um, like, in, re- in reference to, like, Pen and Pixel's work, like, finding those connections, those formal co- connections and thinking about different ways of applying um, kind of that formal gesture in different ways, if that makes sense. Or, like, like Aaron Douglas, for example, um, in, in his work, he uses a, a hand-drawn typeface, which looks kind of like an Art Deco typeface, but he does it the same way on all of his illustrations. So like kind of looking at this artist painting, like put painting type mm-hmm. in a way, who else? There's like, there's a bunch of people that fine artists that I look at, like Layla Ali, definitely. Um, Glenn Ligon um, was a huge inspiration on my poster because his, um, 
he has the Iron Man with the kind of the notations. The in, I forgot what it's called, the in, inspection report or something like this, quality inspection report or something like this, where he was pointing out the flaws in the poster. Mm-hmm. And that kind of led me to kind of do the markings that and like also looking at Basquiat and like doing the markings on the poster that advertises the exhibition. Yeah, that's itself. a really dope poster, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so it's kind of like this idea of searching, but like also, you know, like mark making and and me, I I had a very, very messy like notebook where I was like making connections. And I was like, oh, shoot, all three of these guys are in Chicago. And, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) so, okay, sorry, that was a long ramble. But yeah, (laughs) no, no, I was saying like, I really like that, that additional poster. It's very rare. Actually, I wouldn't even say it's rare. I've never seen jackie's back on a poster like that <laughs> and when i saw it i was like oh, are you serious i was like i, I gotta interview yeah. this guy after i saw that <laughs> a lot, i don't know if a lot of people that know about the classic that is jackie's back that that movie is a classic jackie's back is everything <laughs> it's all on youtube too the whole thing is on youtube yeah it's on youtube yeah Jennifer Jennifer needs to get her money for anyway um, <laughs> for the for those streams. But yeah, it's I have um I mean whatever. So this is going to be controversial. I have like you know it's kind of like as not for and it's kind of um, moments in black pop culture that are as as meaning like just existing as your natural blackness mm-hmm. and then like for meaning making yourself presentable or, or respectable for. Or palatable to white people or something like that. Um, So, like, in the top, I have, like, Spike Lee, and then I have, like, Tyler Perry crossed out. But that's going to be a little controversial. And then then I have, like, Jackie's Back, but then not Sparkle, because Jackie's Back was kind of mocking a blaxploitation film, where Sparkle was a blaxploitation film. And then I have, like, Richard Pryor after he comes out behind the uh the whiz machine and then i have him crossed off as the whiz machine like it's like all these little pop culture gems in there black pop culture gems that you know i i put in there because it's you know people who get it get it yeah <laughs> exactly right yeah yeah so outside of design you you mentioned you choreograph you dj yeah. your dj glenn coco is that correct yes what do you yes. spin is a very specific reference and if you get it you get it <laughs> okay well, what do you spend uh, oh mostly black ass music i play like cookout music so it's like uh evelyn champagne king like love come down luther okay. van Joss. um like kind of th- there was this moment between disco and like the 60s and 70s and then like house music in like the 90s when Black people were making this dance music, but it wasn't a specific genre. It was just kind of like, like the whisper. Oh, like, I, I love that what, genre. I don't know what, you, what that's called, but like that's what I that's what I play mostly, and house music, and and like disco, and then stuff, contemporary stuff that sounds like that. I've heard yeah. the music called. So I don't know if if you've heard of the Axel F Party. Have you heard of this? <gasps> okay, so Axel F Party is this uh party in DC where they play all this music. It's like from 77 to 87. And uh yeah. it's Jerry Curl Funk, Champagne Soul, Laser Boogie. Those are the the terms that they kind of call that genre of music, but 
you got if you're in DC, you got to check it out. Like even like looking at the flyers and everything, the flyers are are very much in the style. I wouldn't say in the pen and pixel style, but I, I think even if you look at the flyers, you're like, oh, you can tell that they are pulling this inspiration like directly from that time period. Uh, that that music that sort of mixes R and B with synths and vocoders and and other electronic, you know things of the time i mean i love that genre of music it's so good yeah that whole moment um for me is i don't know it's 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 something about it. like if i'm at like the grocery store and i hear you know uh patrice russians like forget me nots like i can't stay still yeah <laughs> I, like how do you listen to that and, and stand still you just can't it's like that that whole moment is like my maybe my favorite uh little moment in music history is just uh no, nobody ever decided to call yeah. the thing so which is okay i think i'm okay with it's that. A, it's, <laughs> that, it's the show i call it the shoulder music sometimes you gotta just like you gotta Ooh, hit it with the I shoulder like sometimes so <laughs> that's why i put like cookout music is the closest when you say cookout music like black people are like oh yeah, yeah. I get it. like <laughs> you probably have a, i mean you have some of that you'll probably have some you know you definitely gotta have some uh frankie beverly and the maze in there, some earth, yeah. wind, and fire. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, do you have a dream project that you'd love to do one day? Like that maybe melds all of these things that you're you're passionate about? I have two. And I've, and knowing me, I mean, if, if you know, if you know me since I was a kid, I was never, I was always doing at least like three or uh-huh. four things. I was like, like in high school, I ran track. I also, I choreographed for the dance team. I like also was a I, I was like I used to sketch. You know what I mean? And I was also um, a part of like a youth organization called City Kids, and we used to do like youth empowerment and talk about. You know, it, it was really it was I did a lot. So this this is just who I am. But my two dream things, dream projects are: I want to start a dance company. I don't want to dance. I just want to start a mm-hmm. dance company and I want to represent like African-American design, like street dance, um, things like this on a, on a kind of a concert dance stage and tour that I think that would be awesome. Just like black dance all the time <laughs> on stage and, mm-hmm. and get paid for it. And then the other thing is I want, I would like to start a nonprofit research organization for, for marginalized um, American aesthetics and, um, design like methodologies mm. because outside of the the kind of neglected history of black design i know everybody else has their own history that's also been kind of shunned as well and just something that'll bring those to the forefront and kind of hope my in my head it, it'll help to transform the trajectory of design moving forward and maybe help diversify the way that things look there was an article even on my medium today um, I media. I get a medium digest every morning, and it was like, "Why do all websites look alike?" <laughs> I was like, "Exactly." Oh my god! I brought that up actually. Um, I I read that article. I brought it up in yeah. an interview I did recently about how like all websites kind of have the same like hero image, three column, whatever parallax scrolling sort of thing. Yeah, I, I saw that article. So it really, yeah, it's a, it's a thing. It's like, I, I, I feel, I feel like a lot of other people are, are sick of it too. It's just that, uh, I think, you know, it's kind of, it's a trickle down effect and I feel like it happens every, you know, every couple of years. I feel like, you know, people in 
academia and culture kind of, you know, write these essays and do exhibitions and talk about a thing enough where people on the ground who are designing all have this acknowledgement and, and say, oh, shit, maybe we should maybe mm-hmm. we should make a shift. And then a shift happens. So I feel like that we're in this moment now. And there's a lot of folks in the design world, like um, Ramon Tejeda at RISD and Silas Monroe. At, um, uh, have you interviewed yeah, Silas? episode 85. Oh, shoot. Okay, I'm, I'm, I have to go back. Silas at Otis. And I feel like everybody's tired of, like, they're, Ramon and Silas have a thing called Throw the Bauhaus Under the Bus, which I love. <laughs> and it's just, you know, questioning. <laughs> the Bauhaus not shitting on the Bauhaus because they did have a huge contribution to design but just also questioning it and then um you know as far as like queer representation goes like Nate Piper and Nicole Killian and and as far as like um looking over the thing about publishing and black publishing is Nazi Mutiti at VCU so like everybody's doing really cool shit and I feel like there's this, there's this, something's happening right now. I mean, even like thinking about your podcast being a part of that as well, because you get the the conversations, not the like the this night night neatly tied up essays and lectures. <laughs> yeah, I try to, and I also try to get it not just from like I, I try to add a lot of diversity into what could be seen as like a monolithic set of people. Like I try to yeah. get not just the top designers, captains of industry in Silicon Valley. I talked to folks in New York. I just spoke to a young lady yesterday in Fayetteville, Arkansas, about the UX mm-hmm. community there, which they mm-hmm. they have a UX community in Fayetteville, Arkansas, in case people didn't know about that. Um, I talked I talk to people <laughs> in the Caribbean, throughout Europe, throughout Africa. I've had I've interviewed two people in Australia. I would love to get a black Brazilian on the show. I would love to just know Ooh. about what the design scene is in Brazil, since it's the, the largest country, but just in general. Um, so I try to add a lot of nuance and, and, and just diversity into that because I think people can see black designer and think just one thing. Um, also sometimes, and this is, I don't, I'm not trying to like, you know, take shots here, but sometimes, especially with black media, when the term black design gets thrown out, it often ends up only being, uh, code onto the realm of fashion. They're not looking yeah. at the web or graphic design or art in that way. It's like, yeah. oh, black fashion designers are like, well, what about the rest yeah. of us? You know, so yeah, I get that. It's- I mean, it's and also the same thing with like uh, with my exhibition. It's the same sentiment. Like, I um, you can walk in and say this is black design, but then you have hip hop party flyers and Black Panther newspapers and Marlboro advertisements by mm-hmm. Emmett McBain and say Adams Violator, you know, artwork from '99 and yeah. Sun Ra. Sunrise poems from his book, The Measurable Equation, and Sylvia Abernathy's jazz. Like it's it's such a diverse group of work that when you walk in, you're saying these are black people, but like it's not. There's there's yeah. no monolith there. It's a it's a whole different, and each one has its own history. And Sylvia Abernathy with the Black Arts Movement, with Amiri Baraka, and say Adam's huge contribution to hip hop, you know, and um, the Black Panthers influence like it's so many moments in history through this kind of printed ephemera that like you can't walk you can't walk out you know walk away from this collection of work thinking about black people in one way so speaking of black people and i think also just speaking of 
the future. We both were at uh, Black in Design this year. The theme was Black Futurism 2019. We are now at the end of the year. We're at the end of a, a decade. We're really going into the future. When you think of like years that sit in pop culture as the future, there's like 1984, 1999, 2020, not just a new show, but you think of that as like a future ahead. When you look ahead, let's say it's 2025, what is Jerome working on? That is a good question. <laughs> I think that might be my my planning phase for the next step. I would right now want to build my further build my portfolio and arts and culture and nonprofits and working with artists who kind of speak up for uh, marginalized communities. Uh, most, I mean, particularly like the queer and like black communities and build up that set of work. And then with that set of work, start approaching doing my, my dream, <laughs> one of my dream projects, but like the, the research nonprofit most definitely is like, a huge it's for me it's like something important because i don't know if anybody else is doing it i have to do my research to see if it's if mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's happening um and if it's not then i definitely want to exploit that mm-hmm. opportunity and really try to shift the kind of dominance of the way things look right now like all websites look alike and if not that if i get if i if i kind of get tired of design i'm kind of tired of design in a way because i feel like i'm fighting hard and i feel like i i feel like i work really hard (laughs) i feel like all designers might feel this way like you do a lot of stuff you're sitting in front of your computer for hours Mm -hmm. you you know you're arguing with vendors and then you finally get like a poster or a website or something and then everybody's like people like look at it for two seconds and walk away you're like okay (laughs) yeah I mean, digital design can be very, well, it is very ephemeral in that way. We spend so much time on something which has such a very short half-life once it's out there in the world. Yeah. Like, I feel like design itself is not, for me, not very important. It's a set of skills. It's a set of tools to get to to essentially just help people, right? Like, you make things for people. but. So the thing itself is not really that important. I think that the reasons and the and the implications and the intentions behind what you do is the more important thing. And I feel like I feel like a lot of people should just stop designing because they're just making bullshit and wasting time. <laughs> that's um, a bold statement. <laughs> for, I mean, for real. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that doesn't need to, to exist. Um, and like, especially with the condition of the world right now, if you're you're privilege by default to get to sit in front of a computer and make images all day so like why wouldn't you use that that position to do something (laughs) yeah you know so yeah i say that's really what i like about the to bring up the black and design conference again what i really like is that these are people that have design skills clearly but they're using them in ways that are affecting and impacting the community like i first went in 2015 and it was about how do we affect the physical space from the the neighborhood to the city to the state to the region? And then in 2017, it was around spaces for organizing and for protest. And like now this year, it's about really black people in the future, you know, black justice, yeah. black, you know. Wakanda. <laughs> yeah, Wakanda, basically, you know, black utopia. Like how do we take these skills and use them to ensure that we are 
in the future. So I, yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I pretty much like have my, have my CV on my, it's like my website's pretty much an interactive CV at this point, but it's just, uh, my website is jwhgd.co, and that's also my Instagram, so at jwhgd.co. And then um, I also have a Instagram for my choreography that I do here and there. It's uh, at 32counts, at 32counts. The number is 32, don't type out 32. And that's really it. And you can, if you want to give money to Housing Works, come to one of the fundraisers and yeah, that's it. That's really it. All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, Jerome Harris, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, one, I think just for an enlightening conversation about the work that you're doing or the work that you've you know done through your exhibit, but also to show that, you know, it's interesting how, even with the advent of technology design, or at least entry into the design industry still seems to be, kind of roped into these particular narratives around you have to have went to these schools or done these things or all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a self-taught designer too. I didn't go to design school. Um, so sure. to be able to, to use the talents that you have to not only one, you know, make a living for yourself, but also to showcase others that are doing this to help change and rewrite the, the canon of design history. I mean, certainly I empathize with that because it's what I'm doing with the vision path. So I applaud anybody that's also walking that same path and making sure that, you know, more of us are being celebrated. So thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. It's awesome. <laughs> Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jerome Harris and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jerome and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. And of course, thanks to both Facebook design and abstract. As you know, Facebook is a proud sponsor of revision path. And if you want to learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, then please visit facebook.design. This episode, of course, is also brought to you by abstract design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give your developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, which is the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on SoundCloud, 
or wherever you find your favorite shows. And if you're following us on social media, of course, you can find us at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Go to our Twitter profile. I put a question as the pinned tweet about who you want to see for 2020. Let us know. Let us know who you would like to hear from on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.